If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at globalxetfs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Hello, I'm Dave Musgrove, editor of BBC History magazine, and welcome to our new weekly podcast. You're listening to July 2011, part two. BBC History magazine is, of course, Britain's best-selling history monthly, on sale in all good news agents and on subscription. Visit our website, historyextra.com, for more information, or follow us at twitter.com forward slash bbchistorymag, or facebook.com forward slash bbchistorymagazine. So this month, coming up, we have... This was not some sort of uh, elaborate German ruse or deception. It was a real and emerging threat. That was Joe Maiolo on the Nazis' V-weapons. And within the houses of the boys themselves, they tend to be adorned with photographs of sporting teams and trophies. And that was Jane Hamlet on Victorian boarding schools.
For the first interview, we're talking about the Second World War. By the summer of 1944, it seemed that Nazi Germany was heading for certain defeat, but Hitler still had one ace up his sleeve. That June, Britain faced the first wave of attacks by the new V-weapons, a flying bomb and a ballistic rocket. Historian Joe Maiolo was an advisor on a recent BBC documentary about the V-weapons, and he's been speaking to our deputy editor, Rob Attar, about the challenge they posed and how the British reacted to this new danger. Could you please explain exactly what the V-weapons were? Yeah, there were there were uh, there were a number of V-weapons. The two that were actually used in war were the V-1 and the V-2. The V-1 was uh, um, essentially what we would call today a cruise missile. It was a, it was a it was a pilotless robot plane with a one-ton warhead that could be launched at a very large target, like well, for instance, a city, the city of London. And the, the the weapon was designed to be fired in in the general direction of the target. It wasn't a very accurate weapon at all. Um, and essentially, the motor would cut out at the point at which it reached an area over the target, and it would plummet to the ground and, and ignite its um, uh, one-ton warhead. Um, of the two weapons, the V2 was really the more uh, uh, technologically amazing. It was really the first a true ballistic missile, a, a liquid-fueled rocket that uh, flew at supersonic speed and, again, could deliver with some accuracy a, a one-ton warhead on a city-sized target. So when did the Nazis first embark on this V-weapon program? Well, uh, actually, it was the, 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 uh, the, the V-1 was really the Luftwaffe's answer to the Army's V-2 rocket. Now, the artillery slash rocket enthusiasts in the German army in the early 1930s became interested in rockets as in a sense a high-tech solution to their defense problems. Uh, under the Treaty of Versailles, they were limited to a very small army and could undertake only real you know, experimental work. So they were, they were investing in experiments. And the rocket enthusiasts in the army began throwing money at some young rocket scientists, uh, namely uh, Werner von Braun, um, uh, uh, chiefly among them. And um, they began experimenting with rockets. They didn't really reach full-scale production until the war began. Now, one interesting counterfactual here is what if they'd started earlier and what if the weapon had been uh, available for use earlier? Well, maybe that would have changed the course of the war. Um, we don't know. But really, the Penamunda test site, which was a joint Luftwaffe and Army test site, wasn't established until uh, 1936. And real full-scale research with rocketry, uh, large rockets, didn't begin until about uh, 1939. The, the the V1 flying bomb is really the what the Luftwaffe's cheaper and actually in a lot of ways much more attractive long range bombardment weapon. Um, it was fairly low tech. It, it, it's it's autopilot was really you know a souped up standard uh, autopilot for any small aircraft. So it, it was fairly low tech and fairly cheap to, to build. Um, so when did the V1 and V2 weapons actually come on stream? When did they first start appearing in the skies? 
Well, it wasn't until uh, after the Normandy landings that the first V-1 flying bomb attacks took place. I think it was the 13th of June, 1944. And uh, essentially, the, the, the landings in Normandy triggered the, 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 the initial attacks with the, the, the V-1 flying bomb. The V-2 rocket attacks were not until much later, I think until actually the end of um, 1944. And didn't, and they continued really into March 1945. At which stage, uh, Allied armies had reached um, their launching areas. So uh, London was effectively out of range um, by that stage of the war. For the v- V1, the, the the height of the bombardment period is really from June 1944 until uh, uh, early 1945, and the V2 rocket. It's the end of 44 until March 1945. And what were the Nazis hoping to achieve with these weapons? Did they think they could change the course of the war? That is the point. I mean, they're, they're, they, they, they were labelled as retaliation weapons by uh, the propaganda minister, uh, uh, Joseph Goebbels. But that's not what they were really meant for. They were meant to be uh, a devastating answer to which, what was really a much more devastating attack, the uh, a joint Anglo-American bombing campaign against Germany. The, the the V1 and the V2 were uh, the products of two armed services, the, the German army and the German air force, trying to give Hitler an answer to the scale of the um, Allied bombing attacks. And both services believed that their, their V weapon, the, either the rocket or the flying bomb, if the attack could be launched with a great enough intensity on the city of London, you could force the British, uh, you know, I mean, one wonders what they imagined, that the, that the British would somehow sue for peace, that it would force some sort of stalemate in the war, who knows. But what they believed was if you could pummel London with enough either V1s or V2s, then you would force the British government uh, um by you know inflicting enough uh, pain on the people to force the government to uh, sue for peace, it's a, it, it, it has to be said that theory, the idea that if you if you threw enough uh, high explosive bombs at people, in other words, bomb cities, that somehow you could defeat nations at war was prevalent in the 1920s and 30s. This is really the 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 dawn of the of air war. Uh, on this scale, so it's not. It wasn't. Um, the Germans weren't alone in believing this sort of thing. But frankly, at, at, it was something of wishful thinking. So, realistically, what kind of threat did the V weapons actually pose to Britain? Um, frankly, very little. I think to, to put it in, in, you know, to give it a number, the entire weight of the attack of all the V weapons combined on London was 0.23% of the high explosives dropped on Germany. So minuscule. Um, now, 9,000 people were killed. There was displacement of people. There were uh, uh, injuries. Uh, houses and buildings were destroyed in London. But the attack, although frightful and, and, and damaging to morale in and of itself, uh, the, the, it was, the attack was never in any danger of changing the course of the war. And that was largely because the Germans couldn't produce and launch enough of them um, to have the sort of effect that they had intended. Now, you know, having said that, war is simply not an ash- a rational act. Um, there was a great danger that had British intelligence not understood and identified the threat early enough that if it had come as a surprise, well, you know, 
you know, we're, at, we're asking a counterfactual question here, but let's say in the summer of 1944, um, the V1s and the V2s started landing and hitting London and, and, and uh, uh, Churchill, his cabinet, the armed forces had no idea that these things were coming. Well, one wonders what might have been done both in retaliation and what sort of military measures might have been taken uh, in response to the attack. And that, again, might have changed the course of the war. You, you might imagine, for example, the, the uh, Normandy landings being postponed until uh, these attacks uh, could be stopped. Or the reverse, that somehow the, the Normandy landings be go from being about conquering France as a launching pad for an attack into the Third Reich, but instead it becomes an exercise in trying to destroy the launch sites for the V1 V2 weapons. I mean, these are all very wild, speculative counterfactuals, but um, they're, I think they're worth considering in trying to contextualize what the V1s and the V2s meant. So yeah, you, you mentioned earlier that the British found out about the V weapons. How did they gain that intelligence? Yeah, um, it was really through a number of sources. Um, the, the most important being photographic intelligence, which um, identified and confirmed the existence of the weapons. But the intelligence came from a variety of sources. Some of it was simply uh, through uh, uh, um, human intelligence, we call it today, secret agents passing rumors of secret weapons they heard about. And the very first mention of anything like a rocket comes in 1939. There are other rumors that appear, but the first real definitive evidence actually came from you know what would be described again today as prisoner of war intelligence in march of 1943 um british intelligence overheard and taped a conversation between two german generals in uh um uh, who were captured uh, they were being kept in the in the united kingdom and they happened to begin a conversation that ran something like, well, gosh, you know, I guess the, the rocket weapons aren't as, you know, weren't as ready as we were and operational as we thought they were because we don't hear the sounds of the explosions of them raining down on the British. And of course, you know, <laughs> uh, these were, it was fairly reliable. They weren't being interrogated. This, you know, they were talking amongst themselves and talking about how the, the Third Reich might win the war. So this obviously sent alarm bells ringing through Whitehall and through the intelligence services. Again, through prisoner of war intelligence, this time tricking a German general into talking about the, the, the rocket weapon, also confirmed that what were, what, you know, this was not some sort of uh, elaborate German ruse or deception. It was a, it was a, it was a real, um, an emerging threat. But it was a combination then of photographic intelligence identifying Penamunda, which is, of course, this Nazi rocket test site in the Baltic. Um, photographic intelligence initially identified it as some sort of uh, experimental station for aircraft. And uh, in June of 1943, a photograph, which is, good, by the way, going to be reproduced in the magazine, identifies three rockets, one certainly being prepared for launch and two not very far away. And it's quite clear from that, uh, in retrospect, it's quite clear looking at that photograph of what we're looking at are V2s being prepared for launch. At the time, there was a debate about what these large cylinder-like objects really were. They looked like large torpedoes or, or, or something. No one quite knew. And there was a debate in Whitehall about the reality of the threat. Um, a committee was set up under Duncan Sands, Churchill's um, son-in-law, 
who was something of a rocket expert himself, actually, and he set up a committee where the scientific uh, uh, intelligence community and advisors of the government were brought together to debate the possibility of whether or not uh, uh, um, Britain would soon face a rocket attack. And um, to summarize quickly, a debate broke out between uh, Lord Sherwell, who was Churchill's um, top scientific advisor, and R.V. Jones and others. R.V. Jones, by the way, was is remembered as the father of uh, scientific intelligence, and he worked for both MI6 and the Air Ministry at the time in the field of scientific intelligence. Now, Jones certainly believed that the rocket threat was a real one, uh, and had been concerned about it since since the start of the war. Churwell was a very, you know, it's a very controversial figure, and later he would be sort of villainized as sort of the man who stood in the way of preparations for uh, uh, the V-weapon attacks, uh, um, gaining steam by his skepticism about the existence of the, the V-2 rocket. Uh, that's a bit unfair. Uh, his argument was, well, why would, why would the Germans invest enormous amounts of money and scientific energy into you know, a weapon that would be able to carry only a very, you know, relatively small payload. Why wouldn't they just invest all those resources in building huge bomber fleets? Um, and in a sense, he he was right. Anyway, he argued vociferously in Whitehall against the existence of. Um, the V-2 rocket, he thought something much more like the V-1 flying bomb was the real secret weapon that the Germans were developing. Um, and again, I don't want, uh, I, 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 it's a very technical debate, but essentially it, it boiled down to those who believed that the Germans might have made some sort of breakthrough in liquid fuel rockets versus Churwell, who was saying, well, actually, no, I mean, the best they could have done is make some sort of solid fuel rocket and the, the, to, to make a solid fuel rocket big enough to carry a payload to London uh, would require a steel container, and that the steel to contain the combustion of the solid fuel would be so heavy that the rocket uh, itself would not be able to fly. And I mean, that simplifies it, but that's, that captures what the debate was about. But it was really um, the photographs uh, coming from um, aerial uh, photographic intelligence uh, in the summer of 1943 that confirmed Jones's suspicion that the Germans really had uh, made some sort of technological breakthrough. Other forms of intelligence helped. For example, listening in to high-level German uh, secret communications. This is this is known as ultra intelligence. Um, Jones certainly made a lot of the fact that radar units of the German army were being posted to Penamunda, and this was clearly in his mind an indication that these units were being posted there to track the test the test flights of rockets and 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 other sorts of weapons. Anyway, um, by the summer of 1943, I think no one really doubted that Penamunda was the site of something that was very threatening uh, and had to be had to be destroyed, and um, that just really begins the launch of the offensive part of Operation Crossbow, which is the um, um, uh, the Allied code name for their suppression of the V weapons. And in um, on the 17th, 18th of 
August 1943, uh, the RAF launches really what is one of the, the most uh, remarkable first nighttime precision bombings of anywhere in Germany. And um, it was a very daring and, and costly raid, but it certainly set back the V-weapon program by at least several uh, very crucial months. The Allied counteroffensive, which was Operation Crossbow, how successful was that in neutralizing the V-weapons? Um, in, in war, timing is everything. Like I, I suggested earlier, if the V-weapons had been available in 1939, well, gosh, you know, uh, who knows, maybe the Germans would have won the war. A lot of the German wonder weapons, whether we're talking about jet fighters, um, advanced submarines, or the V-weapons, they all arrived just a little too late. This is basically the problem with them. Um, the raid on Penamunda, depending on who you believe, set back the V program by you know anywhere from three to six months. Well, three to six months in that stage of the war was was was, was quite a long time. Um, it, setting back the program, of course, also gave the British and the uh, you know, the, the Americans time to plan crossbow and also to use aerial intelligence to identify the launch sites. The V-1, uh, the flying bomb, needed a fixed launch site. It needed a ramp and it needed facilities for preparing the, the missile uh, for launch. And once this, the, if you like, the, the, the footprint of these sites was identified, in other words, what it looked like from the air, it was possible to identify virtually all of them. And all of them, I think there were over uh, uh, 90 sites, and they were identified, and all of them were attacked, and virtually all of them destroyed. Um, which meant, basically, the Germans had to rebuild them all and learn how to camouflage them. And, of course, here again, is the argument about time the you know the, the germans had to invest resources and time into rebuilding all the launch sites and uh, this again delayed their 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 program um with the v2 the rocket um crossbow itself was less successful in the sense that it, it was much more difficult to attack the actual launch sites because any uh, all you needed to do to launch a v v2 rocket was have a concrete launch pad the rocket itself was could be was mobile it could be carried by a small unit um, of vehicles carrying the rocket and other auxiliary equipment and and they could be mobile within a certain radius and it was very difficult to attack any sort of sight from the air. So the only thing you could really could do was try and attack the production facilities. Of course, the Germans had moved the production facilities to a place in the Hartz Mountains. Um, in other words, they built massive underground, they used massive underground tunnels to uh, place their factories. So you couldn't attack the, the, the factory. You could interdict the transporting the weapons uh, uh, being in transport and the the, the centers for fuel and that sort of thing, but they were very difficult to suppress. And indeed, with both weapons, the V1 and the V2, crossbow from summer 1944 to March 1945 became something of a uh, a cat and mouse game, um, identifying the camouflage launch sites for the V1 and trying to destroy them from the air faster than the Germans could rebuild them and uh, uh, camouflage, you know, in camouflage sites. The Germans became extremely adept, by the way, at, at hiding the launch sites and at, in a sense, occupying them very quickly, launching a few weapons and then moving away from them to some other site. So that while you might damage the, the launch pad, you certainly weren't going to destroy the launching unit. 
the fact of the matter is, um, as the war progressed, and that, you know, from the summer of 1944 to the summer of 1945, um, the Allied air campaign was being really directed at dismantling the German economy, especially um, um, the German fuel supply. And that was really the Allied uh, strategic priority. So resources were being pulled from crossbow to destroying the German economy. And there was a debate at the in the upper echelons of um, the various air forces about really whether um, crossbow was a game worth pursuing. And really, by, I, I think by the later stages, the Germans were, in a sense, winning that cat and mouse game. But, you know, by that stage, the Allied armies were advancing uh, through Fr had advanced through France and were moving into the Low Countries, and by that stage, well, the the the, the game was over because the Allies uh, had captured the launch sites. So it wasn't in the end so much that Crossbow defeated the V weapons; it was the fact that Germany lost the war meant that the V weapon program ended. Precisely. One way to look at the whole V weapon program is that it's um, it's 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 part of that effort in the f in the in the final years of the war to sustain Germany, the illusion in Germany, particularly Hitler's illusion that the war could be won still. I, I, um, there's a debate about this, but I think really um, those who argue that in a sense, Germany had lost the war by 1941, uh, if not sooner, earlier, uh, have, have uh, uh, won the debate. I think there's it's clear that certainly once the tide on the Eastern Front had turned in 1942, there was no way Germany could win the war. You had the Red Army expanding and the Russian war effort growing and victory after victory on the Eastern Front for the Red Army. And you have the expanding Allied um, uh, strategic bombing campaign, the impending Allied landings um, in France. Italy's knocked out of the war. In other words, by the time Hitler orders mass production, full-scale production of all the V weapons in March 1943, really the war is lost. And as I mentioned earlier, the scale of production of both the V1 and the V2 never, and, and their capacity to be launched never reached a level that even the Germans believed would uh, be decisive. Uh, whether or not they would have been decisive is is debatable, and I, I don't think they they would have been. So, um, even though Crossbone didn't necessarily halt the V weapons program, do you still? I mean, do you still think it was a valuable exercise in the fact that it may have saved quite a number of lives by cutting down the amount of V weapons that were launched? Well, that's exactly it. That's that's exactly the way to look at it. I think um, is that um, again, war is not simply sort of these sort of pure pure maths and uh, rational calculation. Um, I think the, the certainly the Allies had to be seen to be doing something to suppress um, the V weapons attacks. They they I mean I think it was over, well over nine thousand people were killed and. Uh, um, uh, many more than that um, um, uh, seriously injured. So something had to be done, and those numbers might have been much higher had it not been for crossbow. So certainly, and crossbow, by the way, encompassed more than the, the bombing, the offensive end. There was also planning for defensive measures in, in London, you know, building more shelters, preparing for the evacuation, of um, 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 uh, you know, non-essential workers and um, um, from London, 
Um, there was also, by the way, a deception plan to f ensure that the Germans never improved their aim, and that was actually quite successful. Um, the, the British used um, their turned double agents, uh, particularly a, a very famous one called Garbo, um, who essentially used his uh, notional network of sp German spies in London to feed back to the Germans that they were, oh yes, you know, the weapons were very effective, they were hitting, hitting vital targets, uh, when in fact the mean point of impact of um, the V V1s was was south was a little too far south. In other words, they were falling short, and um, British deception was used to convince the Germans that they were actually uh, the mean point of impact was correct. So that that was that's another aspect of crossbow um, that we 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 ought to um, acknowledge. But uh, apart from the defensive and the offensive measures, I think there's something important to be said about the intelligence. Which is the fact of the matter is you know the the weapons are identified in the summer of 1943. Um, the uh, the initial attacks are made against Panamunda and so on. But there was something about the fact that you can almost see the attack unfolding. If you're Churchill, you're his cabinet. Uh, you're the high the Allied high command. You can see it unfolding. You understand what's coming, and you can take active measures against it. There's something reassuring about that. And I think Churchill basically tells the cabinet in um, early 1944 that, well, you know, the, the, certainly Hitler is going to use this new weapon against us. Um, it will be it will it will be damaging and terrifying. But you know, I don't think we need to treat it, uh, you know, as a mortal threat. We ought not let ourselves become the slave of our fears. And I, I think that's an important thing to acknowledge that, uh, and it's something, you know, it's a more, it's a wider lesson about the value of intelligence in war that um, it, it, it's, it, it basically provides reassurance. What do you think you'd say is the long-term legacy of the V weapons? Did they have any influence on later weaponry or other technology? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, the V, you know, uh, von Braun, of course, is transformed from uh, Hitler's, uh, uh, um, you know, technical rocketry expert and and, and hero, to um, a hero of the space age. Um, you know, um, both the Soviets and the Allies, as the Third Reich is crumbling, make an effort to capture as much German missile and advanced jet technology as they can. Um, the Allies are much more successful in capturing the scientists, but the Russians get a few of their own. And it's no surprise that the very first Red Army rockets and the very first U.S. Army rockets are basically versions of the V-2 rocket. And uh, um, in fact, I was having a conversation with a, um, a missile designer not, not too long ago, and we were talking about precisely this. And he said, "Yes, I, you know, um, if we were to produce some sort of you know Darwinian evolutionary chart, you know, the the very first uh, item on that chart would be the V2 rocket. The missile age is born at Penamunda with von Braun's breakthroughs in liquid fuel um, rocket technology, and." The marriage of the of the the rocket, one of the war's um, most important technical breakthroughs, with the nuclear weapon, of course, which is the American technological breakthrough, in a sense sets the sets the foundations for the Cold War arms race um, that really you know gathers 
um, pace by the late 1950s and early 60s in, in the case of long-range missiles and eventually intercontinental ballistic missiles. And cruise missiles, uh, uh, rockets, whether it's Scud missiles or, 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 or um, rockets to shoot down missiles, they all owe something to the early technological breakthroughs at Penamunda. So we, we live with this problem till today. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. That was Joe Maiolo of King's College London, and you can read his feature on the V-Weapons in our July issue. Now, the second interview this week is with Dr Jane Hamlet, who's lecturer in modern British history at Royal Holloway University of London. Jane is leading a research project called A Home in the Institution, Asylum, School and Lodging House Interiors in London and South East England, 1845 to 1914. I popped into her office to find out more. And the first question I put to her was why her research starts in 1845. We're looking sort of primarily from 1845, which was the point at which um, these particular institutions expanded. Um, Public schools for boys um, expand from the beginning of the 19th century. Um, Lunatic asylums are built on a mass scale from the Lunacy Acts of 1845. Mm -hmm. And um, lodging houses are increasingly regulated throughout the 19th century, particularly from 1851, because that was the point at which the Common Lodging Houses Act um, made it illegal for um, keepers to keep a lodging house without having it registered with the police. So, Okay, could you clarify what a lodging house actually means in this context? Oh, okay, well, um, in... 19th century London, um, lodging took place 
across the city but um, for those with you know very little financial means uh, the common lodging house was often the place they turned to because it was the cheapest mm. um, however these places were often um, very um, well they were could described by middle-class observers as extremely unsanitary as dark um, cramped badly kept dirty and middle-class observers were also very critical mm. of the conditions in which people lived within them um, common lodging houses were actually in place across Britain in this period um, but more and more pressure was put on them particularly in London um, as space was in sort of under a lot of pressure yeah. at this point um, so I mean we're interested in them because they are um, a sphere of working class activity a sphere of working class life which gradually becomes increasingly regulated by the state um, they're very very sort of heavily criticized by middle-class observers and then the state and the police gradually move into them so we see them as a kind of partially institutionalized space if you like okay is it for the for the um for the modern listener is there any anything that's akin to a lodging house today is mm. that, are they like a really nasty hostel <laughs> um yes um if you could imagine a really unpleasant hostel mm. um with very poor sanitation um mixed sleeping conditions and um very limited rules and regulations uh then you might be um you might come close to what life was like in a common lodging house. Okay. Um, so you, you're investigating these, these three forms of building um, through the medium of material culture. Yes. So what does that yeah. mean, material culture? Um, well, really, um, we're including space within that. So we're looking at how these places are planned and arranged, what's the room layout, mm -hmm. and what's the impact of that on how people move through space, how their lives are organised. We're also thinking about the design and interior decoration of those buildings. So, you know, how is identity created by, for example, the use of portraits in public schools? Um, and we're also thinking about material culture in the sense of how much power the inmates have to bring things into those spaces. So if you think about um, public lunatic asylums, for example, one of the first things that happened when patients were admitted to these asylums, if they were seen as paupers, would be that all their personal clothing was taken away, all their personal possessions were taken away. So we're looking at the things they were allowed to keep in asylums, the clothes they ended up wearing, and what the impact was on their um, idea of themselves, their individuality and their personal autonomy. Mm. And is there any commonality between the three sorts of places in terms of, 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 of how they, they were organised? Mm, that's a really interesting question. And because we're halfway through the research, if you like, I'm not really in a very strong position to answer that question as yet. Although, interestingly, um, so far, some of the strongest similarities I've noticed are between the organisation of lunatic asylums and schools for girls, both of which seem to draw very heavily on um, Bentham's idea of a panopticon and surveillance um, and are designed You'd better just... Oh, OK. Bentham's um, idea of panopticon and surveillance. Yes. Um, well, basically, um, Jeremy Bentham, famously in the early 19th century, um, outlined um, a design for um, a prison called the panopticon. And the idea was that um, it was spatially arranged so it was possible for the prison warders to um, survey the prisoners from every possible angle mm. um, and to watch them as much as they could. Um, actually, this design wasn't built and it, it didn't work terribly well. Um, but um, 
it was very influential on the design of other 19th century institutions and um, particularly um, some of the private asylums we were looking we're looking at um, were built for example with um, secret viewing holes in the doors of patient rooms so um, asylum attendants and servants would be able to sort of look at them and see what they were doing the whole time and interestingly um, I found that in some of the purpose-built girls dormitories um, from the same period these were actually also built with these viewing holes so prefects or teachers um, oh. could monitor what the girls were doing in the dormitory um, right. all the time which is quite interesting sounds, um, sounds reasonably dodgy mm, mm. yes yes okay so so how are you investigating these places then what's what resources are you drawing on is this are you carrying out physical surveys of these buildings if they're still standing is it maps plans what, what are you looking at mm. well um, we're basically using primarily archival sources because we're mainly looking at interiors yeah. and material decoration and these things actually often don't survive although um, sometimes objects from asylums or schools are preserved by the institutions themselves and we can look at them. Yeah. Um, we're mainly working from archival sources like plans, um, photographs are of course brilliant for telling us what interiors looked like at the time, um, inventories, lists of contents and of course you can imagine institutional records like sort of ledgers, account books, um, committee meetings where they discussed you know what what should be put on the walls. Um, I think probably the most useful source though um, is things like diaries, letters, autobiographies, um, sources that tell us what the inmates within these institutions actually thought of the spaces mm. um, and how they reacted to them. Um, and it's very easy to do that kind of research for schools, particularly middle-class schools, because you can imagine that um, the pupils who are literate and tended to go on to write about their experiences, but it's, it's much, much harder for, say, the um, public asylums. We've got very few accounts from um, pauper lunatics and we've got to try and pursue their experiences in a very different way mm. um, in fact we've um, been looking very closely at patient case books um, from these asylums and these um, are of course really problematic because they were compiled by the staff observing what the patients were doing so in a way it's very much not the patient's own voice that's being represented but you know nevertheless this is in some cases the only record that survives of how these people are actually experiencing life in these places and so what we've got to do is try and read between the lines yeah. um, and work out perhaps from complaints or actions that are described how they might have been reacting to the material world around them. Okay so what can we say learn from the type of wallpaper that was in a public school? Mm. Well, that's quite interesting. And in fact, there wasn't much wallpaper in boys' public schools, as you can imagine. No. Um, and in fact, the authorities of boys' public schools um, were quite keen to create a deliberately institutional environment that was not necessarily like um, the home in yeah. this period. I mean, part of the purpose of sending boys to school was that they would be in an environment that was separate from the home. And in a way, um, it was expected that they would be, you know, they would become more manly by being in this environment. So, you know, wallpaper was very much not present in boys' public schools. Instead, you might expect walls to be plain. Mm -hmm. I think you would see um, a lot of portraits of benefactors or 
um, headmasters, that kind of thing. And within the houses of the boys themselves, um, in the later 19th century increasingly, they tend to be adorned with photographs of sporting teams and trophies are very prominently displayed. So these interiors um, are often very much about the institutional life of the school and sporting achievement mm. um, is very important. So what does that teach us about what the Victorians were trying to do in, in public schools? Does it, does it enlighten us on, on, the, on the underlying uh, reason for a public school? Mm. Yes, it does. I mean, in a way, it helps us understand what the environment of these public schools were like and what we hope what was to be achieved as it were by sending your son um away from home you know it was as early as age seven which it is what happened yeah. um and the idea is that these boys would form bonds with other boys and through this system they would become um they would become suitable um individuals they would become sort of manly characters and would be suitable to take on um, a governmental role later and of course to play a wider role in the empire actually it's not so much um, for material things that set these things up as the way these schools were organized spatially right. within the schools um, boys you may well know that boys it's still the case today boys um, lived in houses sort yeah. of separately from the school under a housemaster and within these houses what happened was the housemaster lived in a private side of the house and actually often had very little to do with what the boys were doing in their everyday life they were in fact organized amongst themselves um, um, under a prefect, yeah. prefect system usually and so this this worked spatially there was a distance between the boys and those the school authorities those who were supposed to be governing them and the idea was that by leaving the boys to themselves in this way they would become self-governing small boys would look up to prefects prefects would get used to the exercise of authority and that would make them again suitable to lead government and um, to take forward all the things that was it were expected of the uh, middle and upper classes in this period. So we can see very clearly, I think, that the way in which these boys were left of themselves spatially, and this was reflected in the architecture, mm. um, that this was designed to create a certain set of relationships between them. Of course, it didn't work very well. And actually, in certain cases, we see extreme cultures of violence amongst these boys who were left to themselves, um, some extreme forms of bullying, and um, sometimes a lot of sexual exploitation as well. So, mm. you know, it didn't necessarily work, yeah. but um, that was the idea. And, and you said it was designed. Was it actually d deliberate, or was this sort of an organic development from how public schools have been... Uh, prior to the Victorian period or did someone actually say mm -hmm. this is how we're going to design these schools and this is the end point that we want to reach? Mm. Combination of the two I think you can see it in the design um, because if you look at the plans for these houses a private side is very clearly marked off mm. um, and separated um, however I think as is always the case with architectural design, these plans were realised by individual housemasters themselves, who once they were running a house, would make a choice about how far they intervened in the life of the boys. And some of them were quite reticent. For example, one housemaster at Winchester would um, put on a top hat to show when he was actually going to come into the boys' side of the house to warn them when he was coming. Um, although some housemasters were quite different and were actually a lot more 
involved in the boy's life. So actually we can see that this system worked in different ways and was very much dependent on the individual housemaster and how he wanted it to operate. Okay, so just um, broadening out again um, beyond the schools to, to, to all the places you're looking at, what, what are we going to learn about Victorian society by looking at by, by studying this? How, how is our knowledge going to be advanced? Mm. Well, really, um, what we're going to find out is what, well, I suppose the nature, what the nature of institutional life was. And the point of this research is really to try and work out how these institutions were experienced by the inmates. Because Victorian institutions have long been a subject of interest to historians and the reasons why suddenly um, all these institutions expand in this way in the 19th century have been sort of speculated on and argued over for quite a long time and probably most famously by um, Foucault um, who talked about um, a rise of institutions from the late 18th century um, but really what I'm trying to find out is how um, people living in those institutions on an everyday basis um, experienced them. Um, how, what were their lives actually like? Um, and by looking at the material objects they were allowed to use, um, this is really a new way of getting at that experience. And that's really what we're trying to do. So that was Jane Hamlet from Royal Holloway University of London. Her most recent book is Material Relations, Families and Domestic Interiors in England, 1850 to 1910, and that's published by Manchester University Press. I hope you enjoyed those interviews. Don't forget that the English Heritage Festival of History is coming up at Kelmarsh Hall on the 16th and 17th of July. More information can be found at english-heritage.org.uk or in the current issue of BBC History magazine which includes a free day planner to the event. The magazine will have a stand there so do pop by and say hello if you're visiting. Now we'd really like to hear more from you about what you think about the, the, this podcast and the interviews so you can contact us by emailing podcast at historyextra.com or calling a voicemail number where you can leave a message. That number is a UK line at 0117 UK landline callers will pay local rates. Overseas charges and charges from other operators may vary. We've had some really positive responses to our new weekly podcast schedule so I thought I'd read out a couple of the, the emails I've got. This one's from Robbie from Brooklyn who says I'm incredibly fortunate that I can listen to my iPod at work and every month I'd look forward with bated breath to the new BBC History Magazine podcast now I feel like my joy has quadrupled thank you so much for brightening up my days in the cube farm no problems Robbie and Sheila from New Zealand who uh, is a lover of history and walking apparently emailed to say that Auckland where I live is a very hilly place and having an mp3 with something interesting to listen to makes short works of the ascending and descending it's great to be stimulated and thinking about various topics delighted to help all feedback is welcome about the podcast the quality and the interviews that we're doing so do please keep emailing or calling and we will continue to read out anything that we get in that's it for this week next time we have the start of a five-part series on the tudor monarchs kicking off with an analysis of the reign of henry the seventh plus a chat about the fine roles of henry the third so i do hope you'll listen in collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. 
I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.